welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Welcome to Gateway. Glad that you're with us again. For those of you who are perhaps not aware of the church calendar, today is in the church calendar Pentecost Sunday. And over the last six weeks, we've been doing a series from Easter through to Pentecost Sunday called The People of God Empowered. And we've been looking at the person, the ministry of the, of the Holy Spirit. Um, this evening, being Pentecost Sunday, I want to talk <clears throat> around the subject again. I'm going to go to a passage in Luke. Uh, Luke chapter 12, verses 49 through 51, which possibly is an unusual uh, Pentecost Sunday passage, but you'll see why it relates as we go on. And I'm going to read to you just a few verses from the Moffat translation. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he says, I have come to throw fire on the earth. Would that it were kindled already. I have a baptism to undergo. What tension I suffer until it is over. You think I'm here to make peace upon the earth. No, I tell you, it is dissension. And in that short passage, there are three major sort of statements. The first, Jesus is saying, I have this incredible passion to release fire upon the earth. One translation says, I I can't wait to set the world ablaze. The second statement really is about the means by which this release of fire is going to take place. Something has to happen first before this release of fire can take place. And the third statement is the result of this release of fire. What was Jesus talking about when he said, I want to release fire on the earth? What was he referring to? What's this fire that he wants to set the world ablaze with. As I was thinking about it, it struck me that there's really probably only two major alternatives in terms of answering that question. The first has to do with judgment. Fire is a picture regularly through the scriptures of God's judgment. The second has to do with the person and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, right back from the time when the children of Israel were in the wilderness and the fiery pillar was over the temple, over the tabernacle rather. Fire came to be a symbol of the Holy Spirit's presence. So one of those two alternatives probably are the main contenders for whatever it is that Jesus is talking about here when he talks about fire. I think actually we can rule out the first one. I think we can rule out the possibility that Jesus is actually talking about judgment in this passage because it doesn't square with Jesus' character, his mission, or his message to say that he's intensely passionate about setting the world ablaze with his judgment. Judgment isn't his passion or his purpose. Now, I'm not one of those people who would say on that basis that there there isn't any judgment, that there isn't any hell or anything like that. I don't think the Bible teaches that. Ultimately, I think there will be judgment brought to bear on those who reject him and reject his message. But Isaiah chapter 28 talks about that judgment as being his strange act, his alien act. It's not something that he wants to do. Judgment ultimately comes because 
people force his hand in terms of their rejection, but it's not something he wants to do. And the purpose of his ministry and his atoning death was actually to give people a way out of the judgment that they deserved. It was, at least in one respect, to save us from judgment rather than to deliver us to it. So it strikes me that it's highly unlikely that Jesus is saying, I want to set the world ablaze with judgment. I think this reference in Luke chapter 12 is a reference to another fire that Jesus had a passion to release on the earth. John prophesied about it in, uh, in Luke chapter 3 verse 16. This John is Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. And it says in this passage, he answered them, all the people around who were asking, are you the Messiah? And he was saying, I'm not the Messiah. I come to baptize with you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John uses this word fire, this idea as well. And I think we see the fulfillment of John's prediction and Jesus' passion in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, that traditionally and historically we celebrate today in the church calendar. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, it says, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So here's John's prediction, here's Jesus' passion. He's talking about the fire of the Holy Spirit, that he longs to throw out onto the earth, as, it, as one translation says. He longs to set the world ablaze with his presence, with his Holy Spirit. Jesus' passion was to see people baptized in the Holy Spirit. This was the fire that he wanted to release on the earth. And he has incredible anticipation over this fire. He says, would that it were kindled already. He knew that that release, by the way, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, would be the way that his life and ministry would be multiplied. When Jesus ministered on earth, he was limited to one place, one time. As a human being, he's subject to the human limitations of space and time. But when he goes, he said, I'll send you the Holy Spirit. And to the disciples in John, he said, and it's to your advantage that I go and that he come. Because when I go and he comes, he will take what is presently limited to one place and one time, and he will release it to many places through all of time. The Holy Spirit would come and multiply Jesus' life and ministry and spread it throughout the earth. He had great anticipation over that prospect. Verse 50 outlines the means by which this channel of release will transpire. There's something that has to happen before this can take place. The King James starts this verse with but. In other words, before this can take place, there's something else that has to transpire. And he says, there's a baptism that I need to undergo. Now, clearly he's not talking about water baptism. He had been water baptized three or four years, probably probably maybe two, three years before this, by his cousin John in, in the Jordan. He's not talking about water baptism. He's clearly talking about something symbolic that is like a baptism when he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And in Matthew chapter 20, we have a passage there where James and John make an approach to Jesus, and, and they are an ambitious couple, and they, they are wanting the top jobs in what they see as this fledgling startup company. And they ask for it. Can one of us sit on your right hand and one of us sit on your left? In verse 22 of that chapter, Jesus answers them and he says this, you don't realize what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? 
and to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. He's speaking about the cross. He's speaking about the imminent suffering that he's about to undergo, and he describes it as a baptism. The cross is a baptism. We still use that phrase colloquially in our language. We, we will sometimes describe an event as a baptism of fire. You know, when, when perhaps a sports star is introduced in his debut event and he gets a tough time from the opposition. People will sometimes describe it as he had a baptism of fire, something incredibly intense, incredibly difficult, incredibly hard to endure. Jesus is talking about the cross in this kind of way. He's saying, before this fire that I long to release on the earth and set ablaze can take place, atonement has to be made. Reconciliation has to be effected. There's got to be the cross. In John chapter 7, verse 37, Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles in the city of Jerusalem. And on the last day of that great feast, it says, He stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Then it says, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. This verse is the same as Jesus says. There's something that's got to happen before the Spirit can be outpoured. In this analogy, it's a, a river that's being outpoured. In the other analogy, it's being fire thrown upon the earth. But both of them say something has to transpire before this can take place. One talks about it in terms of a baptism. This passage says Jesus is not yet glorified. We think, well, you know, what, what does that mean? Well, John chapter 1, uh, sorry, John chapter 17, verse 1, in the shadow of the cross, Jesus is praying, and he says this, these words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify thy son, that thy son may also glorify thee. All the way through John's gospel, Jesus talks about this time called that hour or my hour. You remember at the very start of his ministry, his mum says, hey, they've run out of wine. Can you do anything? And Jesus says, woman, what has this got to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And throughout John's gospel, this phrase comes out up again and again. Now here in the shadow of the cross, he's saying the hour has come. The time has arrived. Jesus lived in the shadow of that hour. And now it's come, and he says, it's time for you to glorify me so that I can glorify you. Through Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension, the events of that Passion Week, he and his Father are glorified. This has to transpire before the Spirit can be poured out. Calvary is the essential prerequisite of Pentecost. The release of the blessing hinges on, is contingent on a price having been paid. I have this incredible passion, Jesus says, to set the world ablaze. Before that can happen, something has to transpire, and it's the cross. Because out of the cross will flow the stream. Out of the cross will come this fire. In verse 50 and 51, Jesus gives these people who are listening to him, to him the ultimate result what will transpire as a result of the release of this fire. He says, you think I'm here to make peace upon the earth. No, I tell you, it's dissension. I like the way the message translates this. He says, I've come to change everything, turn everything right side up. Do you think I've come to smooth things over and make everything nice? Not so. I've come to disrupt and to confront. 
See, the result of this fire being released on the earth is not perhaps what one might expect. We might imagine that the next verse would say, as a result of this fire, there will be great blessing. And you know, the truth is, there is great blessing as a result of this fire being released, but that's not all that will happen. And Jesus, as a realist, tells the truth. He says, division and dissension will be the result. Not everybody, he's saying, will welcome this fire, this disruption, this confrontation that the Holy Spirit will bring. There will be those, of course, who respond joyously, but there will be others who angrily resist. Division is not his intended purpose. The Holy Spirit may be the catalyst for it, but he's not the cause of it. He doesn't take delight in seeing family units split up, in churches dividing, in communities being at loggerheads with one another. This isn't a statement of purpose. It's simply an honest, realistic commentary on what actually happens when the Holy Spirit does come. And if you've read anything about church history and revival, you'll know the realism of what Jesus is saying. People I know pray for revival. That's good worth praying for. But I want to tell you, if you think it's going to be all sweetness and light, then you're dreaming. You haven't read church history. When revival comes, what it does is divide people. It divides families. It divides churches. It divides community. People aren't always happy about the Holy Spirit coming and setting people ablaze. You know, I I had it said to me in the early days when I started to get caught up with this fire. You know, people would come and say, look, Don, it's okay to get religion, but just don't get fanatical about it. And what they really meant is don't get any more excited than I am. And their excitement levels were at zero, so that wasn't that hard. When the Holy Spirit comes, he confronts and he disrupts. Turning people the right side up is a disturbing event for many of us. We've become accustomed to our misalignment. I was telling them this morning, I remember hearing a story about a woman who had a push bike and the handlebars somehow had been bent in an accident. The wheels still were straight ahead, but the handlebars had got twisted. And, and, you know, she had mastered this misaligned steering mechanism and was able to steer it straight. Someone came along, had mercy on her, straightened the handlebars off. She used to just go off into the bushes and crash. She was, she was normalized to the abnormal, and, and some people in church life have become normalized to the abnormal. Generally in life, we are normalized to the abnormal. And, and I remember in, in the book of Acts where uh, revival had come, I think it was to the community at Ephesus, and people accused Paul and his friends of coming and tipping the world upside down. They they weren't tipping the world upside down. They were tipping the world the right way up. But these guys had become so normalized upside down, they didn't know right from wrong, up from down. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he has a way of tipping things over. Remember, I think, starting this series, I talked about the day of Pentecost, the day that the fire was initially thrown out upon the earth. And it says some were amazed, but others were perplexed. The word amazed has some positive connotations. It's a word that draws us deeper in, wanting to understand this thing that is the source of the amazement. But the other word perplexed, both in English and even more so in the Greek language, have negative connotations. This is kind of a turn-off quality. This is, I see it, but I don't like it. I see it, but I don't want to be part of it. And that happened on that very first day. And Jesus is saying it'll happen on every subsequent day. It's the way things are. 
On that occasion, by the way, that first outpouring of the Holy Spirit, it says some looked at what was going on, perplexed, and they mocked. They took the mickey out of it. These guys are drunk. Others, though, saw something more profound. Listen to Peter's sermon, were deeply convicted and said, what do we do to be saved? How, how, how do we join this community this, that we see forming? How do we be part of this community that's being set ablaze by this fire? What have, what have we to do to be part of this? What's the initiation package, they're asking? Most of the people that are listening are Jewish proselytes. They, they were probably Gentiles, if you read the, the book of, uh, of Acts, from many nations, many of them were proselytes. They were Gentiles who had become Jews. They'd been attracted by the monotheism of Judaism, and they'd rejected paganism, and they'd entered into the, the Jewish community. And, and to do that, you had, there were some boundary markers. You couldn't just turn up and keep turning up. If you were going to enter this community, there were some boundary markers that took you from outside to inside. And, and one of them was, for the males at least, circumcision. There was a, a line of demarcation that, that people knew that they'd crossed. These guys are saying, in every community, there are boundary markers. We can see a community being formed that's unbelievably attractive to us. We can see the fire of God in it. How do we... How do we get into this community? Peter answers their question, and I'm interested in his answer, because he seems to me to be saying three things. There are, the initiation package involves three things. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. As you unpack that passage and as you compare it with other passages in the book of Acts, it seems to me at least that there is three parts to the boundary marker event of what we call conversion, of stepping out of that community and into a completely different one. And they are these, repentance and faith. Turning from something turning to someone. That's what repentance and faith is about. The second thing he says, and you need to be baptized. There is baptism in water. And then he says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I don't think there are two things there. I think there are three. There is this turning from and to. There is being baptized in water. There is this thing that is called in the scripture, the baptism in the Holy Spirit. In the New Testament, when people entered this community, those three things tended to happen in close proximity. In some, on some occasions, there was a short space of time between them. For example, in Acts chapter 8, Peter goes down, uh, sorry, Philip goes down to Samaria, preaches to the people there. They believe there's great joy in the city. They turn from something to someone. They are baptized in water, and yet they wait several days for an apostolic team to come down from Jerusalem to introduce them to the third part of that initiation package, the baptism in the Holy Spirit. See what it says in Acts 8. When the apostles in Jerusalem received the report that Samaria had accepted God's message, they sent Peter and John down to pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit. Up to this point, they'd only been baptized in the name of the Master Jesus. The Holy Spirit hadn't yet fallen on any of them. 
They'd been baptized. Obviously, if they'd been baptized, Philip recognized they'd turned from something to someone. They're ready for baptism. And yet, the third part of that initiation package didn't occur until the apostles came. There was a break of several days before that whole initiation package was true for the people of Samaria. In Cornelius' household in Acts chapter 10, Peter's preaching to those that have gathered. He's in the mid-stride explaining to this group of of non-Jewish Gentiles the gospel, and suddenly they all start speaking in tongues. Peter is taken aback initially, but he recognizes that somehow in the midst of the sermon, they have turned from and to, and, and the Holy Spirit is poured from heaven on them. They are speaking in tongues and prophesying, and he, he later says, I, I couldn't withhold baptism from them. They experienced the same things that we did on the day of Pentecost. They, these guys are genuine believers, he explains to the church council, and so I, I baptized them. So the order of the three things sometimes seems to, you know, be one and then the other or simultaneously and then another one added in. But those three seem, at least in my reading of the New Testament, to be the initiation package, the boundary marker that you need to step out of that community and into this one. You know, when I talk this way, almost invariably there are people present who, who, who get some, a little, perhaps a little confused at the separation that I'm making between repentance and faith, inviting Christ into your life, turning from something to someone, and then saying, but there is something else in terms of receiving the Spirit. Because most of us have been taught that when you open your life to Christ, He comes in by His Spirit and takes up residence in you. He's now dwelling in you. That makes you a Christian. So their question is, since he's come, how can you not have him? How can, how can there be another experience in which you have more of him? How can you talk about receiving a person that you've already received? And, and it becomes confusing for them. Let me just say a couple of things about that, and I want to answer that question. How can you have more of the Holy Spirit when you already have him? By, answering, by, by asking you another question. But let me set it up by reading a story from Acts chapter 19. Paul comes to Ephesus, and he finds a group of people there that are obviously believers at some level. Paul is immediately alerted to the fact that something's not quite right with them, so he asks them pointed questions to kind of ascertain where they're at, and, and this is what he says to them. The first thing he said was, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, we never even heard that, of that, a Holy Spirit, God within us. Well, well what, how were you baptized then, asked Paul, in John's baptism? That explains it, said Paul. John preached a baptism of radical life change so that people would be ready to receive the one coming after him who turned out to be Jesus. If you've been baptized with John's baptism, you're ready now for the real thing, for Jesus. And they were. As soon as they heard of it, they were baptized in the name of the Master Jesus. Now, the implication clearly is that they've repented, they turned from and to. Paul says, you're ready for baptism. He baptizes them. Okay, this is going to take some time. I don't know how long. Maybe it's only minutes. Maybe it's an hour. Maybe it's a couple of hours. But there's a time gap here from their point of turning to Jesus and saying yes, being water baptized. Then it says Paul puts his hands on their head and, he, and the Holy Spirit entered them. From that moment on, they were praising God in tongues and talking about God's actions. Now, just think about this. 
If you've been told, and, and I have, and, and, and actually I believe this, when you open your life to Christ, the Holy Spirit comes in. The book of Romans says if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to him. So the moment you turn in repentance toward Jesus, he does come and take up residence in your life. But if that's all there is about this receiving the Spirit, then Paul's question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed, is a nonsensical question. It's the same as asking, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you received the Holy Spirit? And he's clearly not asking that. He's saying, look, I know at some level you've already begun the initiation process, but I want to know, has there been the full release of the Holy Spirit in your life? Did you receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit when you believed? He clearly believed, and I think it's illustrated by the events of this text, that it was possible to have faith in Jesus, it was possible to be baptized in water, and yet not to have received the fullness of the Holy Spirit that is part of this initiation package. Well, you just say, Don, that just is confusing to me. How can you have more of a person who's already dwelling within you? Look, I know this is hard to comprehend. We are trying to describe a non-spatial being in spatial terms, and quite frankly, it can't be done easily or satisfactorily. Let me try and help your thinking past that confusing hump by asking you to consider changing the question. Let's not ask, how can I have more of the Holy Spirit if I already have him and get confused with possible answers? Let's ask this question. Can the Holy Spirit have more, than, more of you? That's an easy question to answer, at least for me. And I suspect for you too. Let's not get all hung up on the spatial terms of the non-spatial being. Let's simply ask, can the Holy Spirit have more of you? And the answer is an unqualified yes for most of us. There is an entry-level infilling of the Holy Spirit that the Bible calls the baptism in the Holy Spirit that I believe the New Testament teaches as part of the initiation package for every believer. You know, the tragedy of the church is that we've separated those three, three things and we've said to many people, it's, it's okay to have number one, repentance. Turn from something to somebody. He comes to live in your life. You're going to heaven. And it's almost like so many people have settled for the minimum requirement. They've said, well, you know, that's all I want to do. I mean, I just want to get to heaven. And if that's what will get me to heaven, then I'll step across that line. So we have huge numbers of evangelical believers who, who, who would say, I'm born again, I've turned from and to, but whose lives completely lack any sense of dynamic and power. And they're actually quite happy there because all I want to do is pass the end exam. You know, I, I want fire insurance. But, but as I said to you this morning, uh, or to those of you here, um, I made the comment, you know, I don't know that heaven is going to be a comfortable place for a lot of people. Heaven is a place of the intense glory and passion of God, you know. How, however you interpret heaven to be, let, let me just say that the New heavens and the new earth, if you want. It's going to be a place that is ablaze with God's passion and glory. And people who have decided on the minimum 
and think that with a hate-filled heart or a debauched character, I've nevertheless been born again and I'm going to heaven. I suspect you'll be incredibly uncomfortable in heaven because I wonder that the fires in heaven might be actually more intense than the fires in the other place, the fire of God's holy passion. And if we aren't orientated to that and want that, then I'm not so sure that heaven's going to be a comfortable place for a lot of people. It's a thought worth thinking. God doesn't want us to have the minimum. He wants to cast fire on your piece of earth, this piece of earth, the piece of earth that constitutes your life. He wants you ablaze with it. And it's not a matter of what, ha- what minimum standard must I meet, but how much of the Holy Spirit will you allow to have? And, and the answer to it should be everything. You gave everything for me, I give everything back to you. Some of you have been spirit-filled, as it were. You know, you, you know those three initiation things. You, were, you, you repented. You were baptized in water. You received the gift of the Holy Spirit. You, you may be a you know, card-carrying, tongue-speaking Pentecostal. I want to just simply ask you, it's not enough that something historically happened to you back there. What is your experience presently? To say I was filled with the Holy Spirit in 1973 tells me absolutely nothing about my state today because I, be, I could have been empty for the subsequent 40-odd years. The, the whole goal is to live filled with the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul says to the Ephesians, be being filled with the Holy Ghost in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. It's an ongoing thing in the Greek. It's continually come, continually bring that bucket, fill it up. And you have to keep filling it up because the reality is most of us leak, don't we? Come back, come back, be filled with the Holy Spirit. The day of Pentecost that we celebrate today in the church calendar was that first day that the Holy Spirit encountered the Holy Spirit in his fullness. Historically, of course, that's an unrepeatable event. What it did do, though, is it laid down a template by which those disciples then measured the experience of others. In Acts chapter 10, in Cornelius' household, when the Holy Spirit fell on these disciples, Peter looks and says, you know, what happened to us is happening to them. It's the same thing. And, And the template of that day of Pentecost, he places across this event and says, this is the real McCoy. These guys have been filled with the Holy Spirit in the same way we were. They're doing the same things we did. They're speaking in tongues. They're prophesying. They've been touched by the same Spirit that set us ablaze. How can we hinder them being water baptized? And so, of course, he he baptizes them in water. Peter expected that that pattern would be repeated in believers that he encountered from that moment on. I, I believe it's supposed to be that way too. On June 6th, uh, Saturday morning, we're going to take a couple of hours in that Saturday morning and unpack this in a way that I would love to do now, but we just simply don't have the time to do. It'll be an opportunity where you can ask your questions because many people have them. And it's going to be an opportunity where we pray for people and seek to minister this experience called the baptism in the Holy Spirit, where we talk to people about what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Speaking in tongues, what that's all about, why, why, it's, why the scripture talks about it in such positive terms and how it can be an incredible benefit to, to our Christian lives. This initiation package that 
Jesus spoke of and that we see in the book of Acts was all about empowering the disciples to live the life that he was calling them to live. We try and live it with half of what he gives us, not even half, sometimes a third of what he intends to be our inheritance to see this life lived out. And so on that morning, we want to take the opportunity to unpack this a little more for you. And for those of you who would say, you know, I I don't think I've experienced that, to actually come and have the opportunity where you can experience that. Just by word of testimony, I want to just say I was baptized in the Holy Spirit in 1972, long time ago. I have to say that totally changed my life. It totally revolutionized the direction of my life. And it has been on a different trajectory ever since that experience. There was something transpired in me that day that set me on a trajectory, and, and I've never turned back. If you had, I remember one time in our town, we had an open-air meeting. We, we tended to do those things those days, and we were downtown, and we were singing. And I remember, you know, a guy from my classroom, you know, in the, what was those days, the sixth form, year 13 or whatever it is nowadays, walks by and kind of looked at us and then stopped and looked and spotted me in the back row. And he goes up to us and says, Barry, holy cows, I never thought I'd see you in the God squad. (laughs) And then wandered off, just sort of looking back, shaking his head. I I was not one that you would have picked out in terms of, I think he'll be a pastor. I think you'll be, I I wouldn't have even gone, I think you'll be a Christian. It wasn't even close, but something gripped my life. And that experience turned me around 180 degrees and blasted me out of a gravitational pull and I've never stopped since. And and I want to just, it totally changed my life. And and you know, there are some people, ah, you don't need that stuff. Well, I did. I, don't, I can't answer for you, and I'm not saying it makes me better than you. I don't know anything about you, and I'm not comparing me with you. All I'm saying is it made me different. It made me a much better me. It totally changed something, and I want to create in you a hunger for all that God's got for you. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, Check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.